Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hello, my friend. How's your summer going? Hey, I brought up a question on LinkedIn last week. If we aren't connected over there, let's make that happen. The question was what to call a one-off audio recording. You might call it a podcast, and and we could, but that often refers to an episode within a series or the whole series itself, which is also another naming problem. But no one has a problem asking, hey, did you see that video by so-and-so? But if someone posts an audio recording on their site, do we call it a podcast even if it's not part of a series? The reason I ask is this. Audio content works some magic in ways that text and video do not. But people think making a podcast means committing to multiple episodes. This is episode 169, if I'm counting right. And there is value to that. But there's also value to a single recorded conversation. Don't let fear of commitment keep you from creating valuable recorded conversations, not to mention all the content you can create off of the back of that one conversation. And now, let's jump into my conversation with Don Davis. Okay, my guest today is Don Davis. He is the president and principal of 5280 Life Sciences Consulting. If you don't live in the States, that's code for Denver, the Mile High City. (laughs) And he helps life science companies scale through leadership development, project and process improvements, which we're going to talk about today, and implementation of key performance indicators. Don, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. It's a great honor to get to be here. I'm excited about this. So just to get started, give our listeners some context around your background in life science and technology and then moving into consulting. Yeah, so I spent almost 18 years with GE Healthcare, was there primarily by the fact that there was a there was a company that was acquired by GE that uh, somebody had said, hey, look, you'd be a great fit to help mature this company. And so I came into to GE Healthcare with kind of this startup mentality and worked in a lot of different companies inside of GE, primarily just focusing in on that, helping them grow, helping them mature, and helping them get to the point where they were scalable organizations. And it was a great set of experience. I then moved on to Becton Dickinson. I worked for Becton Dickinson for a number of years as well, kind of helping them mature their service organization. And then since I've moved on to consulting, primarily to help organizations do the same thing. Yeah, so scaling is kind of the big picture of what we're going to talk about today. But what, I mean, talk about that, how you help companies scale. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So a lot of companies get this, I guess, the the initial bug that they're going to go from, let's say, 10 people to 200 people and maintain the same culture, maintain the same processes. The organization's essentially going to stay the same. But for anybody that's been a part of one of those 
tight kind of organizations where you've you started out as maybe 10 people communicated really well everything was going excellent and maybe you got some sort of influx of cash and and all of a sudden you're needing to grow overnight to let's say 100 people if the organization wasn't built on a foundation of really strong sort of culture, you know, we'd have to have a good set of mission, vision, values, strategy, those sort of things under its feet. That What you quickly find out is that as you're adding more and more people, you become less and less efficient. And the primary areas where I normally focus in on helping companies is, let's say you're a company that needs a project management office established. Typically, I'll come in and help them do that. I will do project work myself, oftentimes to try and help take on strategic projects and help companies with those. I also will help with technology implementation as well as process improvement. Normally, whenever it comes to scaling, those are the key areas that most companies struggle. So whenever you ask the question, what does it take to scale? It's a custom recipe that more or less has to be developed company by company. And more or less, we start with an assessment of where are they today? What base things do they have? Do they have a mission, vision, values, strategy, those sort of things? And what are they mostly struggling with as well in terms of process implementation and seeing things as they get done inside of the organization? So that's been primarily where I come in and have to develop this custom recipe for them more or less. And then we work on all the critical execution around getting those things done. I can understand like having a strategy and generally a culture is helpful and you want to communicate that as you grow. It's interesting to hear you talk about the mission, vision, values part in relation to scaling. And I guess sure. if you don't have it, who knows where you're going? It would be chaos. And everybody comes in with their own idea of what it should be. And now it's... Psh, right? <laughs> yeah, I could break each one of them down just a little bit more too. From a mission standpoint... A lot of times people want to know that they're having an impact on the world, especially here in healthcare. And there's a lot of reason why people want to be in healthcare and why they want to work for the companies that they want, that they work for. And so having an, having a mission that ties to that, how I'm impacting the world and what I specifically do in my role. And let's just take your podcast for an example. What does a marketer do whenever they deliver a product to the marketplace? that actually has an impact on patients. And I would make an argument that without it, in a lot of cases, patients wouldn't know about, you know, what it is that you're delivering. And in, in other cases, neither would physicians. You could say that you're having a direct impact on patient care by doing the work that you do and marketing things that you're marketing. And then the vision for scaling really is the roadmap. So again, it's how do people point to that North horizon that you're trying to get to? really becomes important whenever you're going from 10 people, say, to 100 people. How do people point to that same common place and say, that's where we're going? And in general, be able to define how they're helping to get there. I love all of that. It's funny because I was listening to, I listened to Scott Galloway's <clears throat> podcast, The Prof G Show. Sounds sure. like you might be a yep. listener as well. Yep. And just this week, I was listening. Someone asked about mission statements and do you really need them? And he said, oh, yeah, they can tend towards yoga babble, but they are important for communicating what you're trying to do. And then you mentioned the vision. In some ways, those are, I don't want to say it's a rule, but it's a decision tool. 
people will have to make decisions and if they refer to the vision and the mission, they can go, oh, this is the right choice because that's where we're going, not the other one, for example. Yeah, it is so important. I mean, it also could help you with defining things that you won't do. <laughs> things that, <Yes. laughs> that don't tie to that place that you want to go, that it's like, yeah, thank goodness you had that mission that more or less told me not to trip over that tripwire. So uh, yeah, that's the, and the most thing. important part of strategy is what we're not going to do. That's right. And yeah, and that's where, at least for a lot of people, and let's be honest about scaling, really, whenever we get to beyond, let's say 100 people, now all of a sudden we're getting to 200 or 250 on a daily basis, the people that are touching those people or talking to those people and telling them what to do likely is not the core set of people that started with the company. And so how do they know how to make those decisions and how do they know when they're making a right one versus a wrong one? And I've been inside of organizations where they'll use the toxic culture and say, if somebody makes a wrong decision, they verbally punish them publicly. I've seen that as well. And it, and it typically doesn't lead to good places for the organization. You just quickly lose people. And it's a real sort of a struggle then to how, to how do you make sure that people are motivated but not scared? You want people that know what to do and they're charging towards that, that horizon that you're trying to get to. If I'm thinking that example just happened uh, at Tesla today, according to what I saw on Twitter. <laughs> anyway, I'll let that go. I missed that one. So I don't know that one, but yeah. Oh, apparently some people spoke up and the boss wasn't too happy. I'll just leave. I don't know the details, but that was the gist of it. Uh. <laughs> so tell us about your podcast. Yeah, so I I actually have a podcast called Life Science Success. The story of the podcast is an interesting one. So I I am brand new as a consultant. So I've only been a consultant for a couple of years. I started right in the midst of the pandemic and decided that now would be a good time to go start a consulting business. And so right away, I hired a couple of people that could help coach me and mentor me in terms of being a consultant and being of value to the people that I serve. And so with that, I, one of my mentors said, hey, look, you really should be talking to people that are your ideal customer. You need to try and figure out what are their biggest problems and how do you fit in that biggest problem space? And I actually set up, I think it was 10 or 11 different conversations the next week. And so in one of those conversations towards the end, one of the people I was talking to said, man, I really wish that I had recorded this conversation. So instantly in my head comes this idea of a podcast. And I said, there's really no harm in sharing our conversation with everybody because realistically, everything that I got a value out of it other people probably would get other elements as well that would be of value to them. And I went into this with just that idea that, you know, I was going to talk to people that could be potential customers, but at the same time, not with the potential customer idea on, but really trying to figure out and understand better what are the problems that are happening in life sciences. As the podcast has morphed along, one of the things that you quickly find out as a consultant is that you're pretty isolated. And you can be the, the one person in a room listening to yourself and, and, and think that you know and understand the industry. 
but all of my industry experience tells me that things are constantly changing. And so we need to keep that in mind. And so how do I keep in touch with what's happening in the world? For me, the podcast has become that. It's been a great way to, to, to essentially build friendships, build business relationships. I've been called at last minute, hey, I need a, a CRO that can do this. And most likely I've interviewed somebody that fits that space. And I quickly go, oh, let me talk to these other people that, I, that I've interviewed. And we're right now quickly approaching the 100 episode mark, which will be a, a great place to, to be. Not quite across the 100 episodes yet, but it's just been a phenomenal journey and a great opportunity for me to just go out and interview people on the Life Science Success Podcast. And I don't really hold on to this idea any longer that, hey, look, it's all got to be about business relationships, but I'm building my network and I'm building the a broader sense of what exactly is happening in the industry through having it. That's what I love about it. Yeah. You sold the whole thing right there, right? Best networking tool ever. <laughs> great learning tool, great way to research your potential customers and great way to provide value to everybody. Yeah, and it's led me to a couple of other things that I have as as things that I want to do as well that I that I didn't start out wanting to do. So one is I interview a lot of first-time CEOs on the podcast. I've also interviewed a lot of people that have had very successful biotech companies that have delivered once or twice their company to either IPO stage or sold it off as well to somebody else. And it's been a good journey for me in terms of learning exactly what they do from their side. But I also, as I said, I started my career more or less helping companies scale. So it's not like I'm like I don't exactly know what they're going through in terms of the investment stages and things like that. And I'm currently working on a couple of different, I guess, courses that, you know, is the best way to probably frame it up. One is centered around bio, biotech entrepreneurship and more or less how to establish your company with a solid sort of scalable foundation at the bottom. And then the second part will be more or less coming into a company that doesn't have established OKRs or KPIs, ways to measure their performance and how exactly do they get to a point where they can use their metrics more or less to drive business performance. Nice. Since you mentioned scaling and all of that, let's move on to that part of our conversation. So we chatted before, you mentioned a couple things. One is putting systems in place for growing companies. And two, picking the right systems to match kind of your position on your growth curve. So you're not <laughs> overspending or missing out on opportunities. So describe... First of all, you've done this a little bit, but describe the scenario for companies who are growing without systems in place. What happens? Yeah, so let me let me just maybe start with a, a quick analogy, right? So let's say you you are early elementary school age. You're getting ready to go off to school. You're going to be in school for a number of years, probably ending with some form of graduation from high school or, or getting into college and moving on to through college. When we start out in our education, there's no way that we would start out with our parents taking us to the store to buy school clothes with buying the outfit that we would wear either to college or as we're getting ready to graduate from high school. And there are times whenever you come into companies where they have chosen flat out the wrong software and they're feeling the pain of that 
system. And maybe it's something that's way over-engineered. CRMs are, are a good example. So a customer relationship management software would be a perfect example of this, where you can have an over-engineered CRM that will track absolutely everything that happens under the sun. But unfortunately, really what the CRM is meant to do is to do two things for you. One, sort of show you where do you have customer data and where is it missing? And then secondly, help you with that, that sales pipeline, hopefully move people along with the sales pipeline. And having a, a solution that's over-engineered, typically in smaller companies, leads to people not wanting to use it. And so there's just so many different places to fill out information. Maybe some people do it differently. And eventually the information that's in there just isn't worth much money at all. Where I would say a CRM could be one of the most valuable things inside of a company. And so when companies get ready to choose their software tools, they need to sort through two things. Free is not always the best option. That's the first comment that I would make. There's, there are great, I would say, online database tools that are out there today. Notion is one example that I've seen somebody bring up You know, recently. I think there's a, a free ERP system as well that's out there. I won't mention it by name just because some people might, might actually take offense to this, but there's a free ERP system that's out there. And I guess I would question at first, when you think about yourself a couple years from now, needing the information out of whatever the tool is, is it a value or not? And if it's not, I would quickly say, let's set aside the free tools for a moment and let's start with requirements and work our way from requirements. So what exactly are you wanting the software or technology to deliver in the end? If we start there, we'll wind up in a better place for people to make decisions. I've got actually a blog post that should be coming out in the next couple of days. It'll focus on the same exact thing because based on our prep conversation, well, I should, probably should write something to, to fill that space <laughs> in as well and just make sure that people know you should move from requirements first and then down select into to who specifically might be able to fulfill your requirements. Yeah, so you don't want to get something as you say that's over engineered or under engineered you want you want to find the right balance so you got to figure figure all that out so how do you how do you decide on a system that will work for you now and yet give you room to grow yeah so i, I typically the walk or journey that i go on with most customers is we start broadly inside of the space looking at key things that they need out of the system that would be the requirements the next sort of phase, we, we would look at specific vendors that, you know, loosely some of those requirements. And then you could, of course, start to ask for demos or even there a lot of the, the, the sort of smaller company packages, you're doing it yourself. And so you have to find somebody inside of your organization that is a little tech savvy, that wants to be able to gain experience and in, in things like that. But also there needs to be a point where you take a step back and say three to five years from now, what do we expect to happen? Because most, even smaller companies have some sort of expectation of what they think the future will hold. And so if it's, you know, you're going to have a lot of people inside of the system and you're going to have a lot of orders, let's say, flowing into your company, what specifically then happens overall to be able to manage that? For that reason, I know one of the one of the key systems that I've helped a lot of clients with is how do we look at project management is a good example. If there's somebody 
that has an established project management team and they're already working through longer term projects, somebody's already come along and normally has said, let's use Microsoft Project and it has some established Gantt charts and ways to track timelines and things like that. But there are newer tools that are out there. There's Smartsheet is one example. Monday.com is another example. And it depends on exactly what's going to happen with your organization and how close to, let's say, true project managers your individuals are as you go through that sort of technology evaluation. What, who, are you, who do you plan you will be using the system in the end? becomes much more of a part of that decision pathway as well. And you have to think through each one of those and also what's going to happen in the evolution of the organization. Yeah. So that's a good point. I didn't think about that so much. It's, you know, where do you want, where do you expect to be? But also when you're starting out, who's going to use this thing? And you have to plan on all of that, right? And as you grow, then maybe you hire someone who's a more expert and so on. So small companies need to be smart about this so they don't spend too much money. Larger companies, when they buy small companies, have a different challenge. Yeah. <laughs> Integration. I worked at a company that had 47 legacy CRM systems, mm -hmm. apparently. And I don't know if that ever gets resolved. If you're a company that buys other companies, there's always something going on. But is there a secret to successful integrations when that happens? Yeah, so I, I, it's an interesting question. So I'll go back to my GE healthcare experience just for a moment. Whenever I was with them, I helped with eight different integrations. One of them, I helped with the Amersham in integration, which was, again, very biotech. And just trying to work through the scalability of the systems was an absolute struggle. The reality is that in a lot, a lot of these cases, the acquiring organization has expectations that eventually the acquired organization is going to migrate. Just not to shade the facts at all, I think some people go in, into an acquisition fully thinking that, hey, look, we're going to be able to keep everything the status quo, every system that we built, everybody else is going to see how great it is and they're going to let us keep what we have. <laughs> <laughs> and that typically is not exactly the way that it plays out. It's it's normally, yeah, hey, the bigger company normally has a big system, a big ERP system. They want you to migrate there. And it's there's a walk or a journey that you have to go through Typically with systems like that, where you need to understand in an integration, in my mind, the acquiring company, first of all, needs to understand exactly how is the acquired company, the small, smaller of the two, most likely, how are they using that system? Because in most of the sort of small to medium-sized companies that I've seen, they don't use, let's say, things the way that, that maybe a bigger organization would use it. They'll have a very a very sort of long way of looking at it from a larger organization standpoint where they'll say, hey, look, there's only so many things that go into this system and we have a very specific use case for it. And anything that's outside of that, we've got other things that we send those things to. Example, let's say that we store documents for a system uh, that we have inside of a, a set structure inside of our ERP system, which would be a weird use for an ERP, but let's just use that as an example. And in our little startup company, we get acquired. Now all of a sudden they say, hey, look, we're going to convert your ERP. And they're thinking that it is only orders and raw material. And so now all of a sudden, all of those documents that we've stored somewhere 
when they shut that thing off, it's all of our documents go away. And so to me, it's part of this discovery process that has to happen overall to really understand specifically what systems do you have? What software or technology do you have in-house? And how is that software technology being used to really understand that? Because most companies that I've seen that are smaller, if they have something that, that they could place things into or use it in another way, they're going to do that. And then whenever a larger company comes along, they may not exactly understand that use case and actually could cause some damage along the way. And I've seen it previously where companies will essentially come along and turn something off and go, where did this go? And they're like, it was in that thing that you shut off two weeks ago. We don't have it anymore. Yeah. JD Edwards was a good example of that. And whenever we would acquire at GE, whenever we would acquire a company and they use JD Edwards, I knew that they, that their system most likely would have all these little hidden things all over the place that they used to process things that they couldn't easily do in other systems. And because it had a workflow engine on the inside of it, people would create these workflows inside of JD Edwards for different things. I need a quality record. I need a whatever. They would, they would use JD Edwards for that. And it's just something you had to look for as part of the overall acquisition. But I also would say on the other side, and the last comment on this one is just the, uh, from an acquiring company standpoint, to go back to your opening comment, acquiring companies need to figure out what's important to standardize and what really isn't important to standardize. An ERP system, there's a whole host of reasons why there's an advantage, a, a strategic advantage for the acquiring company to have control of that information, but also they could leverage that information for better sourcing and better pricing and lots of other things in the future. And so there's to me, there's a lot of good reason to compress one, compress everybody into one ERP if possible, but you can't leave that dying on the vine either. You have to, if you have all these different ERP systems, you've either got to choose, are you going to continue to upgrade all of them or are you going to leave them alone for, from now to the end of eternity? And it's a hard thing to do with an ERP. So. Yeah. That's interesting. The thing I didn't think about there is the acquired company isn't just using a system at a smaller scale. They may, they're solving entirely different problems, perhaps, and the bigger company has a way to make some of those go away and then integrate some of them. And yeah, but also thinking about how do we, it's not just export a spreadsheet and send it somewhere else, which is my, of course, yeah. you know, non-tech. <laughs> mind thinking, oh yeah, just send all the data over. So for people who don't know, I'm going to be a guest on Don's podcast. And in case this comes out first, I just want to give you credit because I'm going to steal the last three questions that you're going to ask me because I thought that was <laughs> all pretty right, interesting. There we go. And just if you're going to ask me, I'm going to ask you. So first of all, tell me something that inspires you. I honestly am inspired by where we are today with science and technology. To be honest, the fact that you and I can do this, the fact that the pand pandemic happened and we didn't have to, everybody shut everything down and go home and industry folds in and essentially the world could have really collapsed during the pandemic. A lot of us continued meeting and carrying on business at least during Zoom uh, or with Zoom and uh, just during the pandemic. <laughs> That's a funny slip. I just yeah. have to say during Zoom, that was 2018, <laughs> 2019, Zoom, Zoom. 2021. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, I think just the fact of technology enabling that. And then lastly, to me, the ultimate place that we wound up with COVID as well. 
and being able to quickly come up with a vaccine. I remember somebody asking me early on, I was actually on a podcast early on and somebody had asked me, when do you think we'll be able to see a vaccine? And I said, look, if we see something early next year, it's because there's already science in place. But there's a, at the time, whenever I was being asked this question, it was, hey, look, I, to be honest, I, there could be a whole scenario where we could have lived with this for three to five years while they were trying to figure the science out of how do you stop COVID? And uh, luckily with SARS and MERS and some of the other pandemics that have happened elsewhere, we were able to quickly replicate the science and come up with something that was a vaccine. To me, it's all a great story. I think lastly, with regards to science, where we are with cancer treatment, which is really what drew my interest in coming to life sciences in the first place, is an, it's an, an amazing time. Again, watching the drugs that are in the pipeline that are being worked through for potential candidates for treating cancer patients, it's, a, it's just a tremendous time from, for watching the science, and I'm thankful for all of it. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things with gene and cell therapy that I would have never necessarily imagined when I was a student. All right, so what concerns you? We're going the other direction. Yeah, this one keeps coming up with my, uh, with my interviews as well. And as you said, Chris, I ask these three questions at the end of, at the end of every podcast, but it's to me, I have to agree with a lot of the answers that I've gotten recently. And it's the state of where things are in the U S today and the ability to not agree with somebody and not have that disagreement turn into something you're just that could be a total overreaction of where we are this idea of having open discourse amongst each other that hey look i don't have to necessarily agree with your political views or i don't have to agree with the way that you see the world that's how that's how ideas are born and and uh, having this ability to challenge each other and understand that we're coming from a place of knowledge to me is really critical and the state of where we are right now it leads me to to this point where i keep questioning how do we get to a point where it's okay to do that again where it's okay to not agree with the person on the opposite side of the table and not just that they either will agree or won't agree with me, but that we can have a dialogue about it. To me, that will be the greatest moment again to be able to say, hey, look, we're turning a corner on that. And I, I really hope that, that that is the future. And I do think there are a lot of people that agree with that, that they're looking for that future as well. When you sent me that question, I had the same, essentially the same thought. And we can talk about it more later, but it's easy to think a group of people are I don't, I don't even know how to say it but be displeased with them in the aggregate but when you meet individuals you can usually find some reason what you like the same whenever i'm watching a sporting event i'm going people of all political persuasions are watching this thing and enjoying it together right, right. there are a number of things that And we would love to have a beer with them or whatever. But when you see in aggregate, and so my concern is the inability to compromise, particularly among our leaders, this winner-take-all mentality, which I think as a country is not good strategically. And I'm not a big national security guy or whatever, but if we continue going at each other, that's an opening for other people to, to do something that would change the life of all of us in a way that none of us want. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, I agree. Uh, I really think that that there's that I think not only are there risks for people in the U.S., there there are risks for other people from the outside to have a greater influence as well, and not certainly something that that I would want to see carried forward either. So yeah, yeah, and I think we have to be able to compromise to function as a team as a country and have those disagreements, but at some point say, okay, this is what we're doing, and you don't get everything you want, but as a group, it's better. Mm. Yep. Okay. We'll end on a high note. What excites you? Yeah. What excites me realistically is the, I have a lot of ambitions right now with regards to the things that I'm doing in life sciences. I actually, unfortunately I contracted COVID recently, but I was supposed to be the, supposed to host a bunch of interviews at bio and very excited about where my consulting business is going and where the podcast is going and just seeing the overall growth of something that I've built from nothing has been a lot of fun. I've also, uh, I've got two books in the works. One hopefully will come out here in the next, let's just say couple months. We've got, I've still got some final editing that's got to happen in the book that's closest to the finish line. And it will focus primarily on this idea. And it's funny, it came from an idea that first I saw in myself. And then secondly, I also see the same sort of challenge with my kids right now. All my kids are are older. And so they all were struggling with something that that I grew up with, which is overcommitment is an easy thing for me to do. So I love to sign up for the next thing and go do the next thing. And it's exciting for me. But I've also learned as I've grown how to balance that with exactly where I want to go. And so this idea of purposefully setting out personal goals that relate to my personal life, my professional life, where I want to be financially, as well as, you know, exactly what my fitness goals are, is the way that I focus on the world today. So I don't have to have everything tomorrow. I I want to chip away at it piece by piece. But whenever I look at this concept of just having all these opportunities in front of you, my kids as well are seeing and doing a lot of the same things that I've seen myself do in the past. And so I thought, well, there's an opportunity here to write a book about how to not do it or how to at least balance your life a little bit better in the direction that will lead you to where you want to go. And so that's what the the book will be about. And so, yeah, all these things excite me. I love seeing the podcast and consulting and working on on a book or two as well as it has been just a lot of fun. Yeah. One, congrats on nearly 100 episodes on your podcast. Two, I only hear people talk about writing one book at a time and how hard that is. Good luck to you. you. (laughs) And I think the topic there is really relevant. I don't want to say I don't think I'm an overcommitter, but let me say that it's something my teenage daughter is struggling with right now. Mm -hmm. Lots of things and trying feels she's good at a bunch of things has ended up doing a bunch of things and then is struggling with, oh, but I'm still not quite getting some of the the balance that that she wants. And how do you teach that to get, and to be, so you have to have a plan. That's (laughs) right. Yeah. You have to have, you have to have a plan, but you also have to afford yourself a couple of things and at least understand that, um, 
your brain needs a break. We're, we live in a society where stuff's coming at you all the time and it's easy enough to keep everything on and constantly work on things. But you quickly find out that you're either going to get burned out or your life is just going to be a continual mess. You're not going to make it on most of your commitments and people will get frustra- frustrated with that as well. Right. Yeah. Give it, affording yourself just that grace of either meditation, vacation, a social media break, whatever it might be, is uh, something that I know a lot of people talk about, but actually doing it is something that, that you've got to follow through on as well. Yeah, great advice. All right, Don Davis, thank you so much. This has been a treat, and I look forward to talking to you again <laughs> in, on the flip side. In a couple of weeks. All right. All right. Thanks so much, Chris. And thank you, my friend. As always, for listening. If you enjoy this podcast and you're new here, please share it with your colleagues. I'll be back in a few weeks with another episode. Bye-bye.